Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. Today, we have a new story about last Friday's climate strike. The focus of Kaylin Huffman Brower's story is on two local high schoolers who spoke at the rally in Dunmeadow. We also have a feature from Norm Holy. This is part two of his interview with David Koniski, a professor at IU Bloomington School of Public and Environmental Affairs. That's coming up later in the program. But first, your environmental headlines. On September 23rd, Greta Thunberg, the world-renowned 16-year-old Swedish climate activist, and 15 other young people filed first-of-its-kind complaint with the United Nations. The complaint claims that five of the world's major carbon polluters are violating their rights as children. If the complaint is successful, the UN will classify the climate crisis as a children's right crisis. The five nations named in the complaint are Argentina, Brazil, France, Germany, and Turkey. Success for the complaint would mean that those five countries would be required to work with other nations to establish targets for reducing emissions. The complaint asserts that world governments are violating children's rights under the UN Convention on Rights of the Child. Drafted in 1989, the Convention is the most signed human rights treaty ever created and lays out the inalienable rights of children. Those rights include the right to life, health, and peace, with special stipulations for indigenous groups. Human population grows at about the same rate as worldwide carbon dioxide emissions. This trend has been in place since 1900. The relationship is important in the battle to limit global warming to 2 degrees Celsius. For example, in 1900, the human population was 1.6 billion, and the atmospheric carbon dioxide was 290 parts per million, ppm. The population reached 3 billion in 1960. The carbon dioxide level was 317 ppm. Currently, the human population is 7.7 billion and the carbon dioxide level is 415 ppm. As the population increases, so does the carbon dioxide level. This relationship between population and emissions is important. The population, according to the UN, is expected to be over 11 billion people in 2100. This could also mean a 30% increase in carbon dioxide. That level of carbon dioxide would predict a temperature rise of around 4 degrees Celsius. The two trends appear to be coupled, but they aren't. 
if, for example, the world converted to wind and solar energy, there would be much less rise in carbon dioxide, even as the population expands. The fact is that the two are parallel points to the reality that the people are still relying on the traditional mix of energy sources. There is no indication the human population will stabilize in time to prevent catastrophic climate change. What is achievable is to vastly increase reliance on non-CO2 producing sources of energy. A new report reveals the health and financial costs of climate disruption to Americans in 2012. The report finds that 10 major events linked to climate disruption caused almost 1,000 extra deaths, nearly 21,000 hospitalizations, nearly 18,000 emergency department visits, and $10 billion in health care costs. Researchers from Columbia University, the University of California at Los Angeles, and Natural Resources Defense Council studied the effects of extreme weather strongly associated with a heating planet that occurred in 2012. The single most significant weather event that year was Hurricane Sandy, but the overall financial costs from wildfires exceeded those of Sandy. All those costs didn't count billions of dollars in damaged property that the storms and wildfires caused. The researchers also found that the most vulnerable people were most affected by climate disruption. Medicare and Medicaid bore two-thirds of the costs of illnesses. Those government-run health care programs cover mostly the elderly and the poor. Slowly, steadily, and almost imperceptibly, North America's bird population is dwindling. The sparrows and finches that visit backyard feeders number fewer each year. The flute-like song of the western meadowlark, the official bird of six U.S. states, is growing more rare. The continent has lost nearly three billion birds, representing hundreds of species over the past five decades, in an enormous loss that signals an overlooked biodiversity crisis, according to a study from top ornithologists and government agencies. An advantage of tracking bird population is there are sound data available from the National Bird Counts. This is not an extinction crisis yet. It is a decline in abundance as humans dramatically alter the landscape. There are 29% fewer birds in the United States and Canada today than in 1970, the study concludes. Grassland species have been hardest hit, probably because of agricultural intensification that has engulfed habitats and spread pesticides that kill the insects many birds eat. But the victims include warblers, thrushes, swallows, and other familiar birds. Annual kills of birds from domestic and feral cats is estimated to be approximately $2 billion per year. A new national coalition representing 10,000 U.S. farmers and ranchers is urging Congress to support a Green New Deal for agriculture. The Coalition of Independent Farmers, anchored by Regeneration International and the Sunrise Movement, is calling for a massive overhaul of food and farming policy to address the climate and farm crises. On September 18th, the coalition announced the delivery of a letter to Congress urging support for the Green New Deal and calling on lawmakers to make agricultural policy reform a priority for addressing the climate and economic crisis facing independent family farms. The coalition 
asserted that the Green New Deal's goal of net zero emissions by 2030 is achievable, but only if it includes policies that spur two large-scale transitions, one to renewable energy alternatives and the other to regenerative agriculture and land use practices. The letter to Congress said, quote, We stand ready to help achieve all the goals outlined in the Green New Deal, but we need Congress to work with us to develop food and agriculture policies that support climate-friendly, organic, and regenerative farming, ranching, and land use practices, unquote. The September 20th climate strike had an estimated 4 million people on the streets worldwide and everywhere youth led the way. In Bloomington, the climate strike rallied on the IU campus in Dunmeadow. Two local high school students shared the stage with half a dozen college students and professors. Here's Kaylin Huffman Brower's report on the two speeches given by the young students Tilly Robinson from Bloomington High School South and Arena Trotter from Bloomington High School North. Okay, just a moment. Let me put down my backpack and my lunchbox. So begins Tilly Robinson's articulate speech at Dunmeadow. She and other youth led the way last Friday for the climate strike in Bloomington. Robinson, a sophomore at Bloomington High School South, told her own journey to environmental activism. She remembers a family road trip to the West when she was just a middle schooler. She saw snow-capped mountains and wondered if the snow and glaciers would survive into her adulthood. She saw billowing smoke from distant wildfires that threaten the wilderness and humankind. Why, she asks, are threats to our biosphere brushed aside as inconsequential, inconvenient, when these signs point to a clear and present so why danger? why has our government not acted? Because too many politicians are owned by corporations and by the wealthy. Trotter, a high school junior from Bloomington High School North, spoke next, leading the way, offering a call to action. 
school and getting politically involved can be really daunting, especially when you're too young to vote. But you showed up today and you took that big first step. And now I'm here to tell you what you can do next. The first thing you can do is educate. Educate yourself and others. Dig into all the factors, water, waste, fossil fuel, food, biodiversity. Learn what you are up against so you can face it better. And then organize. Volunteer for a candidate who will fight for climate justice. Join an environmental organization. Start your own. Write a pledge. Donate to environmental organizations. Organize a protest. Find your team so that you can do the most important step, which is fight. Do not let deniers tell you that this is not worth the time and energy because it is not just the future, it is now. March, strike, yell, fight, because the world needs justice for the climate crisis. If you're young and in high school, you may feel hopeless. You may feel like you're out of options or that there's no solution, but there is a solution and it's you. Thank you for striking and I'll see you at the next one. In the following feature, Norm Holy speaks with David Koniski, a professor at IU Bloomington in SPIA, the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. There have been uh, periodic grumblings by states east of us about the air pollution that Indiana is sending their way. Will it ever come to states actually being sued by other states? Yeah, that, that, that's an important dimension of, uh, of air quality in the United States, the fact that, you know, a lot of the, the uh, particularly older, large facilities in the Midwest, much of the pollution not only affects us here at home, but also moves many hundreds of miles to the east following sort of wind patterns. It's complicated. There are regulations in place that are uh, under the Clean Air Act, which are intended to address this cross-state air pollution, as it's referred to. And so there are programs in place to try to put additional limits on emissions from Midwestern sources as a way to improve air quality on the East Coast. And those are fairly new programs, so they're still under sort of early years implementation. There are cases where states have either tried to sue other states or pursue sort of administrative action through the U.S. EPA. And there's a, a process under the Clean Air Act that's referred to as the Good Neighbor Provision, where the EPA does have the authority to put additional pollution limits on plants when their pollution is going long distances. And historically, I don't think the EPA has utilized that authority too often, so I'm not sure that we're, there's any short-term risk of that happening, particularly given the nature of the current EPA and what their priorities are. How would you characterize the current EPA with uh, the EPA under Obama? Yes, night and day. It's quite different. During the Obama administration, you know, the, the EPA was quite aggressive in putting in place new rules in all different areas of environmental policy from trying to deal with greenhouse gas emissions causing climate change to toxic emissions from both air and into the air and into water, programs around public lands. Everything was quite different than it is today. What we've seen over the last few years during the Trump era is not just a, a rollback of the regulations that the prior administration had put in place, but a, a, a real attempt to 
sort of handcuffed EPA from making future rulemakings to improve the environment. So it, it really has been a, a wholesale shift in, in attitude at the agency, much more business-friendly now, pretty hostile to the environmental community and, and the prior activities of the, of the EPA. So what's interesting about all of this, of course, is that these are all these actions are administrative actions. So they, it's how durable they are is a real question. A new administration could come in and change policy once again. So it's become a little bit schizophrenic depending on which party is currently in control of the White House. What we're not seeing is much by way of new laws from Congress, which would sort of compel or, or give um, a particular impetus to the EPA. This is all discretionary administrative action. So it lends itself to pretty major ebbs and flows depending on who's in power at any given time. I'd like to ask you about uh, energy policy and, and the future. Uh, what are humans thinking of in terms of the future of, of the globe? Are they thinking in terms of survival for 100 years or are they or a thousand years, or a million years. It seems to me that we're very short-sighted in the way we look at energy. A little bit hard to generalize. I think also, I mean, depending on one's perspective, one could think about this differently. I think our political system tends to think very much in the short term, and that explains why, you know, for many decades now, we have not really had any coherent energy policy. It's been more reactive to changes in markets and technology, um, and it hasn't, there's been no coordinated attempt to think about our energy system. Things just sort of materialized depending on, you know, the markets and consumer demand and things of that nature. A lot of Democratic candidates for president are trying to put together plans that would be more systematic and more long-term, right? And, you know, they're more ambitious in terms of the scale of what they're trying to propose. But even so, those plans are thinking about the next 20 years, the next 50 years, not so much anything after that. But I think that's logical. I think that kind of makes sense from a political standpoint of what's of how um, politicians tend to think about the future. Now, there are certainly other people outside of politics who are thinking more about the long term and thinking about what it would take to have sort of a, a wholesale energy transition and what the implications of that are. But that's, that tends to be a separate conversation from those who are making policy and, and trying to win elections. Are there other things you'd like to mention to our listeners that you think are important? Well, I think the last thing I would, something that I think a lot of people who, who think about energy policy and think about politics have to grapple with is the different time dimensions of sort of the urgency of the climate problem, right, and how long it takes to transform a system such as the energy system, not just the United States, but, but globally. And it is a Herculean challenge to completely transition our economy from one based on fossil fuels to one based on on, on cleaner sources of energy. And that's going to take a very long time to accomplish. Yet, on the other hand, we face this imminent crisis with, with climate change. You know, and if you read the latest scientific evidence, you know, we're, we are told that we have just, you know, a few decades, let's say, to stave off the very worst consequences. So those two time frames don't quite line up exactly in the same way. And that makes this a particularly challenging 
a challenging problem, but not a hopeless one. You know, I think every any effort we can make to clean up the energy economy has climate benefits. And even if we even if it takes a while, actions that we take today will certainly have benefits tomorrow. So it's all still very important and it's it's essential that we get a we get a faster start we get moving rather than feeling incapacitated or somehow you know unable to take on this challenge i'd like to thank you very much for your comments i've been speaking with professor david kaninsky of the spia program at iu thank you very much yep thanks for having me Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. For some upcoming local events, Forage for Food on Saturday, September the 28th, from 1 to 2.30 p.m. at RCA Community Park. Learn how to enhance your usual dishes with wild mushrooms for your pasta or natural remedies for common ailments. Discuss safe practices and useful identification techniques. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. The Sassafras Audubon Society will have its annual fall bird feeder cleaning on Saturday September 28th at Bloomington Hardware, located at 2700 East Covenanter Drive in Bloomington. Get your feeder power washed and scrubbed clean. Drop-off time is between 9 a.m. and 2 p.m., with pickup between 2 and 4 p.m. The popular Lunch with Nature series resumes on Monday, September 30th at 11 a.m. at the Paintown State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake. The topic will be Life in the Soil, which will explore critters, fungi, and other things that give life to the ground. Sign up at bit.ly slash 1WNSEP2019 by September 27th, and don't forget to bring a sack lunch. 
The first Saturday Invasive Control Workday is scheduled for Saturday, October 5th from 1 to 4 p.m. at the RCA Community Park where you will help remove woody invasive plants. Meet at the RCA Small Shelter and wear long pants, long sleeves, and closed-toed shoes. Register with Joanna Sparks at sparkj at bloomington.in.gov or call 812-349-3497. Monroe Lake is seeking volunteers for shoreline cleanup on Sunday, October 6th from 1.30 to 5.30 p.m. Workers should meet at the Cutright State Recreation Area where you will be transported to different parts of the shoreline by boat. After work, there will be a free thank you cookout. Register by October 4th at bit.ly slash Monroe Shoreline 2019. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812 334 4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's local news story was written and produced by Kaylin Huffman Brower. The feature interview with David Kozinski was produced by Norm Holy and edited by Patrick Callanan. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. David Lyman wrote and edited the script. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show with help from co-producer Kalen Huffman-Brower. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. And this is EcoReport. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.